I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. As a nonprofit focused on educating and empowering people to get involved in climate action, we're reliant on the financial support of our listeners. So if you're a regular listener and you value what you get from us, consider a donation that aligns with that value. All you have to do is head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. Even $5 a month goes a huge way in helping us to deliver on our mission. And if you're short on cash, but you still want to help out, tell your friends to subscribe and rate us on your streaming platform. Thanks, Flora. Definitely an important one. You know, we, we need to increase our listening base to increase our impact. So yeah, even if you don't have the cash, tell your friends about us and head over on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen and, and give us a good review. So today we're going to be talking about our, uh, our friends to the north, you know, the country that uh, loves ice hockey, has free healthcare, where folks still know how to be polite, <laughs> you know, where everyone has a pet moose, right? Um, who doesn't like Canada? Uh, you know, I got to say, when doing the research for this, I, my folk singer favorite, Gordon Lightfoot, is from Canada, sadly passed away recently. But I didn't know Justin Bieber was Canadian. I guess I'm still <laughs> stuck in the Stone Ages. That one does age you a little bit, Jason. Just a tiny bit. <laughs> what are you going to do? Thomas, you're a big fan of poutine, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Love it. Can't get enough of it. I don't know whether it's the potatoes or the cheesy gravy. <laughs> so... Because of its northern location, Canada is also experiencing much more rapid change when it comes to the climate, from temperature rise to increasing wildfires. It's working to become a climate leader and leave its climate laggard reputation behind, but a difficult challenge given, you know, its large oil industry that's that's one of the dirtiest. So before we dive into the conversation about Canada and climate, let's talk about this week's reason for hope which is there is a climate trial that kicked off this last week in Montana. There are 16 youth plaintiffs that filed a lawsuit actually back in 2020. The wheels turned slowly. <laughs> um, the claim alleges that state policies regarding energy run counter to the constitutional right that the state provides a clean and healthy environment. Seems pretty reasonable to me. Uh, apparently, it's the first ever they call constitutional climate trial in the U.S. for those lawyers out there. Yeah, I th think this nonprofit law firm is behind a couple of other cases in other states as well, including one in Hawaii that may go to trial uh, later this fall. So it's great to see a few law firms you know, getting behind the, the climate movement and Worrying about doing things other than just uh, suing Ed Sheeran for copyright violations, which he didn't do. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple good articles in in the Guardian on the topic. They're doing a pretty nice job of covering it, and we'll we'll link those in our website. But fingers crossed, they can they can make some progress, and you know, if nothing else, they're help laying precedent for some of these other cases and turning up the heat on the you know politicians that aren't willing to to do the right thing. Yeah, good stuff. So our, our guest today is Simon Donner, a climate scientist and professor at the University of British Columbia. He was a lead author in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's recent six assessment report, and he's a member of Canada's Net Zero Advisory Body, which advises the federal government on pathways to eliminating climate warming emissions. 
some more fun stuff about Simon. Not that that all wasn't fun. Uh, he's a longtime water sports enthusiast who's described by his family as an aquatic plant needing sun and water to thrive. And during the pandemic, Simon dipped into the freezing ocean near his Vancouver home every day for over a year. That's commitment. Huge commitment. <laughs> I think I can relate to the aquatic plant. Maybe that's what I am too, because <laughs> yeah. I definitely like to spend time in water and need sun. Well, Simon, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thanks for having me here. So to start things off, when you think about efforts to address climate change, what, what makes you hopeful? Well, you know, I hear that word hope a lot or what makes you optimistic a, a lot from students. <laughs> you know, people ask me, students ask me, the media asks me, et cetera. And it's interesting. I'm a very hopeful and optimistic person in general. People that just know me would say that. And so it because of that, I don't love the word hope when it comes to climate action. And because so much about whether somebody's optimistic or hopeful is just sort of about their own personality, not necessarily about the evidence. And, and so what I've sort of come to sure. over the years is that it's not really about hope or optimism or pessimism even when it comes to climate change. And that really what this is about is courage that we need okay. that, you know, the planet's warming faster than at any point in the history of human civilization. And it's going to keep doing so unless we stop putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so we, it's going to, this is requires a huge transition or huge transformation. And so it's going to take guts, right. To shift paths. And so I, I like to think of it as what is going to give us the courage, what is going to give us the guts and, for me personally, there's many things, but one float always floats to the top for me is that the solutions to climate change are generally good ideas anyways, regardless of okay. climate change. And, and the one, I mean, the most obvious one to me is just air pollution. You know, the majority of the, the air pollution that affects human health around the planet, kills million, millions of people a year, is from burning carbon, burning fossil fuels. But if we transition away from burning coal, burning oil, et cetera, to other forms of generating energy, we'll eliminate a lot of air pollution and save a lot of lives. And we would also happen to solve climate change. And so it's those right, co-benefits right. that I'm like, this is such an obvious thing to do. This is a good idea, regardless of how you feel about climate change. I like the word courage. I think you're right. We all have to find that thing that, that gives us the courage to embrace the change. And I think you're right too, that, that there's many of these solutions that have, as you say, co-benefits um, that make it a kind of a no-brainer. Well, since we're talking about Canada today, let's jump into, you know, for those who live outside of it, what kinds of climate impacts are, are unfolding in Canada? How is climate change manifesting? We're seeing climate change sort of in our daily lives so much in Canada over the, the past few years. Uh, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, but I live out here in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia now. But the big thing to understand about Canada is that Canada's warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. Wow. And that's not surprising. I mean, northern countries like Canada are expected to warm faster, and it's just got to do with feedback effects that happen with melting ice and a little bit of feedback effects that happen in the atmosphere. So the fact that Canada's warming faster than other parts of the world kind of confirms that sort of scientists understand some of the physics of what's of the planet. Right. But what's coming with that, and we're really seeing in the past few years, is the increase in extreme events, heat waves, droughts, fires, um, flooding events, and both river flooding events, but also high tide levels on the coast. And we've had some incredible, just disturbing climate disasters over the past few years. The heat wave that affected where you are in Portland, but also us here in, 20, in 2021, 
uh, we had a heat wave where temperatures reached almost 50 degrees Celsius in Canada, in British Columbia, in the dry part of the province, but out here on the coast, you know, reached into the low 30 Celsius, so like into the 90s, which is just not something that happens in our pretty moderate climate of Vancouver. And as a result, 700 people died, just a little under 700 people. And it was sort of this reminder that, you know, climate change is always this thing for Canadians that thought was going to affect other people more that we'd, if anything, Canada would, you know, people just say Canada will benefit, you know, we'll be able to grow things further north and the winters won't be as cold and there'll be fewer cold related deaths and, and, and sicknesses that happen. But I think we've just got a stark reminder in the past few years of just how damaging the effects of climate change can be even in a northern country that doesn't seem like it's that hot. It's, it's all about what you're adjusted to. And here in Vancouver, we were not prepared for that type of heat. Yeah. I mean, 50 degrees Celsius is objectively hot no matter where you are in the world. Yeah, I know that, no, that was in the, in the interior in Lytton, British Columbia. It didn't quite hit, obviously didn't hit that here on the coast, but it's all about what you're adapted to. Uh, and I don't know, this probably experiences somewhat similar in Portland. Very small fraction of homes and buildings in Vancouver have air conditioning. Yeah, we certainly have heating for the winter, but the temperatures just doesn't get that warm here. Most summer days, usually in the 70s Fahrenheit, you know, mid 20s Celsius. So if temperatures get into the 80s or 90s, it's uncomfortable here yeah. because we're just not prepared for it. Yeah, very, very similar in Portland. And I think, you know, marine climates like Seattle as well. I mean, all those West Coast cities, people, especially vulnerable people, right? We had this incredible series of sort of compound events because we had that horrible heat wave in 2021. And then a few months later, we had devastating floods that due to basically what they call an atmospheric river, but really, really a series of really, really heavy rainfall for a few days happened a few times in a row in the fall, October, November, and led to flooding that a few people died, a lot of cattle died, a lot of people driven off of their farms and off of their homes. And the heat wave actually helped set it up because the heat wave meant the soils were dry, a lot of trees had died. And so then when we had heavy rainfall in the in October and November, the soils on the you know on all the mountains weren't ready for it. They couldn't withstand it. I guess maybe that's that's a segue to another question, you know, as we're talking about this. I mean, how how are Canadians coping? How are communities coping, especially those that are really out there, you know, and and exposed to these extremes? Obviously, just like the U.S., Canada is such a big country that it depends so much coast coast to coast. And so the thing that always worries me with the effects of climate change, but particularly climate extremes, is that everybody's very caring about it when the event happens. We have these forest fires going on. There, there finally has been some rain uh, just, just this week that have tamped down some of the forest fires in Alberta and in eastern B.C. Every, so that'll be in the news while it's happening. But then it drops off of everybody's sort of radar right. after the extreme conditions end. But if you live in one of those communities, you're dealing with it for years, right? You know, Lytton, British Columbia was basically burned to the ground by a forest fire after the big heat wave last uh, in 2021. And, you know, it's going to take years to figure out how to have everybody move back to their community. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to look at it, that, you know, there's sort of the headline cycle that obviously generates or can generate a lot of flow of resources and, and whatnot, but for a lot of these, you know, events, you're, you're, you're right, you're talking years to recover from them. Well, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, Canada's main sources of emissions for folks who, you know, who may not be aware, like what you're sort of, what are the big buckets when it comes to Canada and, and emissions? So this will be no secret to Canadians, but people outside the country might not realize how big of an oil and gas producer Canada is. And as a result, oil and gas production, this isn't the consumption of it, just the emissions from producing oil and, and uh, 
fossil gas. That's a little over a quarter of Canada's emissions. That mostly is coming from the provinces of Alberta, a little bit Saskatchewan, a little bit British Columbia. And and so that's like the highest bucket. Yeah, it's a big number. It's the highest bucket. After that is transportation, a little under a quarter of emissions. We're transporting stuff long distances here. And so after oil and gas and transportation, the next biggest one is only uh, would be buildings because of course we have building heating yeah. is a challenge, you know, is, is obviously another big source of emissions here. We use uh, natural or fossil gas for most of that in a lot of parts of the country. But you'll notice, like I've, I've mentioned, oil and gas and transportation is the big ones, buildings, there's, you know, heavy industry and everything. I didn't mention electricity. So unlike a lot of the US, although not all of the US, electricity emissions are actually quite low in Canada. It's only about 8% of our total right now. And it's because we have a pretty low carbon electricity grid dams and and hydropower dominates in some parts of the country british columbia manitoba quebec etc the ability to generate electricity without burning a lot of fossil fuels is for me the reason that canada could really be a leader in climate change solutions because we just have the resources to do all of this right like we have the land you know for for wind for solar and certainly for hydro and so it's one place that canada is probably a little bit distinct from what people might expect in the us or otherwise yeah, very different from the U.S. where, you know, transportation is our largest at about a quarter, followed very closely by our, you know, our electricity market, right? So let's talk about goals then. You know, what what kind of ambition has Canada set in terms of reducing its emissions? So Canada, for Canadians, uh, we, we're used to this. Canada has a long history of setting targets and not really doing anything to try to meet them. Uh, <laughs> I would say that is changing now and that there are actually plans and policies in place. But we have a target that's um, not as tough as the U.S. target for 2030. It's a 40 to 45% reduction below 2005 levels by the year 2030. So that's our kind of near-term target. Uh, and that was decided on leading up to the Glasgow Climate Conference a couple of years ago. That was increasing the target from a 30% reduction. But the really meaningful thing I would say that happened wasn't this interim target, but was the long-term stuff. So under our current government, uh, under uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, when they ran for office uh, in the last election, they promised that they would have binding emissions targets aiming towards zero. And so shortly after being reelected, they put a bill through parliament that said, we are aiming for net zero emissions by 2050, and we are going to have legislated targets every five years up until then. And so we do now have that bill passed parliament. And so we do have this goal of getting to net zero by 2050. And my involvement in this was that I got, I was um, asked to serve on an advisory body to the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Canada on how do we get to net zero and what should those interim targets be. And that was all set up because it's actually in the legislation that created the advisory body. And then for some reason they called me, <laughs> you know, among many other people that deserve to be there more than I do, I think so. Well, so, you know, sounds like make, maybe not quite as ambitious as the U.S., although I think the U.S. has a history of making big pledges and maybe not quite reaching them. Yeah, Canada hasn't cornered the market on that. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like targets are in line with where they need to be. Maybe tighter or a more ambitious 2030 would be nice, but, but Canada has the net zero, you know, targets out there. What is it doing to, to meet those from a, you know, from a national level? So, and this is a place where I will uh, give our current government credit. They are taking the advice of the experts, maybe not aggressively enough, but what Canada's done, it's quite a con interesting contrast with the U.S., right? So 
you know, under the Biden administration passed the Inflation uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is kind of like a piece of industrial policy. It's just like throwing money at the industries that, that we think are part of the future, electric vehicles, hydrogen, et cetera, right? Canada, there is a lot of spending initiatives, but really what Canada's done is follow all the sort of policy and regulatory advice. And some of it is that we're able to pass these things, right? Whereas recognizing that politically in the U.S., some of that stuff, it's just not politically uh, feasible to do. So when the Trudeau government first came into office about eight or nine years ago, their promise was we're going to put a price on carbon, and they did. And so Canada does have a carbon price. It's not a tax technically. What the government did is they said, each province, you can come up with your own system. It can be cap and trade. It can be a tax. But- Whatever you do, like if you don't do it, we're going to charge you this, uh, the federal number, price number, and put the price on on anything that's sort of burning carbon, basically. And so the provinces have different systems and the federal system, the federal government has like a backstop for the provinces that were being stubborn and didn't want to do it, basically. Sure. So, which was a not perfect, but I think a clever way to deal with provincial disagreements in Canada. And so we have the carbon pricing system and that price is going up to $170 a ton by 2030. So it's going up about $15 a year. But on top of that, there's this unbelievable suite of regulations, infrastructure programs, targeted investments, that there's so many different policies and things going on at the federal level that even though I serve on a federal government advisory body, every once in a while, I'll be on a call and somebody will mention something. I'm like, wait, what program is that? I've never heard of that one. And just to give you a sense of it, we have... A zero emissions vehicle mandate the government's finalizing. So for passenger vehicles, have to be zero emissions sales by 2035. For medium duty vehicles, by 2040. We've got a clean electricity standard that the feds are working on to get uh, emissions from electricity to, print to zero by 2035. We also have a clean fuel standard. So fuels that are carbon-based, it's setting, uh, uh, California has something like this saying uh, that we have to reduce the, the carbon footprint of those fuels. There's been a cap is being placed on emissions from the oil and gas sector. It's very complicated and has not been, the method hasn't been chosen quite yet, but that's in the works. There's tax credits for carbon capture and storage projects. There's a methane initiative. There's all these funding agencies for transition, a net zero accelerator, an infrastructure bank. There's a just transition plan. There's a greening government plan to get government to do things. There's like mineral strategies. Like it just, the list is incredible. And so I, my only criticism of it would be that most of it doesn't quite have enough teeth. And it's a bit like we're so, some of these things we're thinking too marginally. You know, the, the zero emissions vehicle mandate, the clean electricity standard, those are great. That's what we need to be doing. A lot of these other things, they're, you know, kind of playing on the edges too much. Um, sure. Or they just don't have enough detail yet to know how effective the policy is going to be. So. I was aware you had a price on carbon and, and in the form of more of like a fee and dividend, but I didn't know about all of the underlying, you know, legislation that you're talking about. So there really sounds like there is kind of this combination of what would be called more of a market approach where you're saying, let's, let's put a fee on the thing that we want to get rid of. And then also this regulatory uh, approach. And on top of all this, the government does also, is also trying to provide incentives for companies that are in the renewable energy space or the zero zero emissions uh, space, including just providing a whole bunch of money to basically a subsidy to Volkswagen and I'm forgetting the other company to build battery plants in Canada. Okay. Uh, because there is a real concern for Canada. It's hard to compete against the market that exists for these things in other parts of the world, particularly in the US. And so the worry is we'll be moving in the right direction of climate solutions, but we'll be killing all of these Canadian industries at the same time. And so we need to make sure we're sort of building the industries in Canada as well. And so our advisory body has actually been pushing quite hard on 
really deliberate industrial policy around vehicles, around minerals, et cetera. Uh, and there, I think there are actually some good lessons from the Inflation Reduction Act on that. So wondering, you know, Canada is obviously a vast country, lots of forests out there. Where do natural climate solutions kind of fit into Canada's net zero strategy? I would say I don't know for sure on the net zero strategy, but at least for the short term, thinking about going to 2030 and everything, the you know, the government's committed to this uh, sort of 30-30 plan, protecting 30% of uh, land and waters by 2030 that a lot of uh, governments in the world have signed up for. I don't think we're there yet, but and so wrapped up in that is the idea that natural climate solutions can be part of solving climate change. You know, just we have vast forests in Canada, et cetera. I just put caution on it. This is the part of the emissions budget for the country and the proposed solutions. It's the fuzziest. Some of it is that the accounting of the emissions is hard to do in the first place, like what um, net uptake or net emissions from our forests and everything. And, and then the other thing is that we're in this, I don't feel like the U.S. talks about this either. When studies come out and say we could do X percent of the solution of the emissions, we could solve by natural climate solutions, planting forests to take up carbon out of the atmosphere, et cetera. When we're thinking about net zero, some of the path to net zero is going to inv- involve fuels being generated from land, perhaps right. from cropland, but definitely from forests in Canada. And that is because it, when we're looking at longer distance transportation, like transport trucks, ferries, airplanes, et cetera, batteries alone and electricity probably aren't going to be the solution. That might be part of it. And so we are going to need uh, to be also using some land probably to generate fuels. And so then the challenge is those two things, the potential demand and need for biofuels in the net zero future and the natural climate solutions. Those analyses are done like separately by different people. But if you put them together, they end up conflicting. I'm like, well, hold on. How are you going to get this much uptake from land via natural climate solutions if you're actually managing some of the forest land to create wood chips to create fuel out of? Right. And the other risk for Canada, and this has been, there's been some politics over the years, of course, is that saying we're going to manage our forests to uptake carbon is wonderful. What do we do about fires? <laughs> right. Like it's not all in our control. And so Canada for years under the Kyoto Protocol used to argue that we should be able to count forced carbon uptake towards our, our Kyoto goal. Canada was a signatory to the Kyoto Protocol. And it was interesting is that Canada was among the few countries arguing that for a long time in the Kyoto group. But then after the mountain pine beetle outbreak in Western Canada that killed a lot of pine trees, and flipped the carbon budget for Western Canada from being a sink to a source, the government stopped arguing that, <laughs> right? So, so I just I just worry that uh, natural climate solutions are important. I worry that we're promising more than is probably possible. So, recapping here, it's like things have been bad in Canada. You, you're you know seeing these climate impacts unfold more quickly. Sounds like the the government response has been fairly robust. Like opportunities to sounds like accelerate things, but focusing on the right stuff. And so I guess now I get question would be like, how can our listeners in Canada, or maybe our listeners just south of Canada, how can we help you know with the the country realizing its climate goals and net zero future? You know, I, I know that's for, not an easy question to answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is not an easy question. Um, you know, for me, like for the average Canadian or the average person listening to this outside, you know, there's so many things you can do in your own life to reduce emissions, right? Whether it's thinking about how you move around, you know, what type of vehicle you're, dri- you're driving or whether you're driving one at all, 
how you heat and cool your home, what type of food you eat, et cetera. Like all of these different things that you can do to reduce emissions. But I think one of the lessons we've seen over the past few years through the pandemic is that personal actions alone can't solve the problem, right? Emissions didn't go to zero during the pandemic when people were staying at home. They decreased, but not by that much. So what it tells us is that like personal actions alone aren't enough. What we need is governments to make the incentives, right? So it's easy to say, well, you should buy an electric vehicle, but we need to government policy to make it easier for people to do that. A lot of Canadians, I think the vast majority of Canadians are down with doing things to reduce emissions, but we need the incentive structure set to make it easier for them to make those choices, right? And, and the part that I find always interesting about this is that how do, you, how do you send that signal? You can do it by voting, but you can also just do it by talking to your representatives, um, MP, Minister of Parliament, the Canadian term for it. Because one of the things I've really learned from the policy work over the past few years and, and working you know, hands-on with folks in the government is that people in government don't hear from the average person in the public. The government in Canada doesn't hear from the average Canadian, nor does the U.S. government hear from the average American. They hear from lobbyists, they hear from interest groups, they hear from activists. And that's great. But it's easy to dismiss what an activist is saying because you know that this is their whole driving force in life. It's different if everybody else and sort of the more muddled middle on this subject are also contacting their representative. So I'm always like, just send a letter. Letters in particular, actual paper letters are very influential compared to emails for one. So just tell the government what you want to see and what you want to hear. Because at some point, when they get enough letters from somebody, it means that the staff person has to tell the representative, whether it's a congressperson or a minister of parliament, listen, I'm getting a lot of letters about this from your constituents. We need to do something about it. Like we've done research on this. There is like a threshold beyond which it gets elevated. And so I really feel like the most important thing you can do sometimes is just communicate it. Talk about it with your um, uh, your elected representatives, but also tell people in your community, hey, I wrote this letter. You might want to do that as well. And right. so there's sort of a grassroots mobilization that's necessary to get that top-down policy, I think. We, we love the suggestion because we're big advocates of, you know, engaging with government. But I, I, it's great to hear you sort of talk about it in the, in the lens that you do. That is, day to day, these representatives or elected officials are used to hearing from the activist or the lobbyist and, and maybe not the average person. And that I think sometimes it can be easy to assume that, well, the representative's too busy or, or you know, my reaching out isn't going to make a difference. But because, you know, these representatives aren't hearing from constituents as often, it sounds like then every letter, every call, you could argue has a much bigger impact than it would otherwise. Yeah. And I, I think especially when it's coming from not the people they expect. Uh, and there's also the potential that the government changes. And if a conservative government under the current leader, Pierre Polyev, came into power, they would repeal a lot of this. Right. Maybe not everything, but a lot of it. And so I think Part of what Canadians need to do, regardless of how they, which party they support and how they want to vote, if you're in favor of these policies, folks in office need to know that, you know, client policies need to be sticky. We want them around. And, and I'm guessing you would say is that you don't need to be well-versed on these things. It could be as simple no. as saying, I like, the, I like the clean energy mandate or I like whatever it is, and, and I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of it is that maybe you're not interested in climate change, but, but you don't like uh, smog. Well, policies aren't that different, right? Right. I mean, one of the things I always think about electric vehicles is that beyond all of their um, the value of them not contributing to climate change to the same degree, not contributing to air pollution to the same degree, they're also just quiet and more <laughs> pleasant to be in and to drive, 
right? Like there's a lot of reasons to argue for them. Yeah. Cheaper to operate, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And cheaper to operate for sure. Yeah. Well, Simon, certainly learned a lot about Canada. I hope our listeners outside of Canada and maybe within Canada did as well. <laughs> and excited to hear that, that Canada's on the on the right path. I mean, obviously more we can do and we need to do it faster, but there's a certainly I get a sense of momentum there, which is great to hear about. And and if people pick up that phone or send that letter, it sounds like we can help build upon that. Great. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about the path Canada's on. I do worry about the effect of a change in government if it were to happen. And I do worry about how we're going to deal with the oil industry, just given political challenges within the country. Yeah, I, we certainly haven't uh, relinquished our, our desire to you know extract more fossil fuels yet in the U.S. either. But, you know, I think each person saying something about it definitely goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Simon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. So I don't know about you guys, but I was definitely impressed, obviously, with Simon's interview, his his mm-hmm. breadth of knowledge. But I also really appreciated, you know, the discussion of courage as as opposed to just optimism. Obviously, we're very much about optimists here for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, the courage thing resonated for me because I think, in truth, it takes courage for some of us to to make these leaps, right? Taking the time to write our our you know legislators who represent us and say, hey, this is important to me. Because if we all have a little bit of that courage and we all make an, make, make an effort, you know, it, it, it definitely has an impact. Um, what, what do you guys think? Any, any cool takeaways, thoughts? Oh, I, well, I definitely agree with the courage piece. I mean, especially giving up privileges that some of us have gotten to enjoy for a while. Like the, the small one that comes to mind is eating meat. And like, I think there's, you know, people are making it easier and easier for us to do that with these alternatives. But yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's a courageous thing to let go of something that is comfortable and that you enjoy. So I liked that a lot. Very true. And, you know, that's, as individuals, right, we all can't do it by ourselves, but being able to be that change for our friends and family is, you know, that has a, a knock-on impact. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Jason. And that accountability piece, which is definitely easier when you've got other people doing it, is something that we obviously also see at the scale of nations. And I was thinking a lot about this 30-30 plan that Simon talks about in his interview. And it kind of is just, you know, that macro scale telling your friends to you know cut down their emissions to step um up. exactly to step up but it is it is non-binding which simon brought up and so i don't know i i feel like it's it's interesting to be setting these targets it's important to be setting these targets but at that scale i i, I do wish we had a little more yeah legislative accountability so i'll be interested to see where they go with that in the future yeah and the, the problem with this whole non-binding situation it it doesn't provide certainty for businesses, right? Like they want to see a runway that they can launch down to go and build a new battery plant or set up a new whatever it might be, invest in efficiency because they they, they need to know that's going to put them ahead in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. And I do think that like industry piece is really interesting because when I was reading about it, um, I read this article by the University of British Columbia talking about, you know, this goal of conserving 30% of the earth by 2030. And there's this really interesting idea that like the land that would be conserved is not all land that's, you know, the middle of a forest. A lot of it, a lot of the places that have that have important resources, um, like freshwater, you know, 
are places yeah. that right now are being used for agriculture, um, planting. People are living and working in these areas. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to see. I, I hope that countries will stick to it and, you know, possibly do it in a more binding way in the future. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly a good start. I mean, it's similar obviously to the, the Paris Accord, right? These are these are non binding. So whether we're talking about conserving these wild places so that we can halt mm-hmm. biodiversity loss, hopefully, or whether we're talking about, you know, reducing carbon. You know, unfortunately the the constructs right now are non binding. But I, mm-hmm. I, I think it goes back to the, you know, being able to put pressure on your neighbors and, you know, I think there's ways to put pressure that way. And and I will say about the carbon price in Canada is that to their credit they have one. And I would argue their construct, not totally unbiased here, but their construct is a great one, which is that we're going to put a price on carbon and it's going to increase the cost of all the things that, you know, fuel, heating oil, et cetera, that have carbon in it. And then we're going to, you know, be able to provide, they call it incentive payments to families to be able to deal with that increasing cost. And, you know, in Canada today, you've got a carbon price of $65, still pretty modest, but that equates to about 60 cents a gallon on gasoline, which isn't isn't nothing in the US people would be throwing up their hands if it was 60 cents more expensive. And by the time you get to, you know, 2030 when the carbon price is going to be 170 a ton, then all of a sudden the price of gasoline has crept up $1.50 a gallon. And so you really have the price signal in place to drive different behavior, but at the same time, you're not disadvantaging folks that don't have the income, right? That energy costs are a bigger part of their expenses. I really like the model. And I think, you know, once people get a bigger and bigger payment, it's then hard to sort of pull the rug out on that. You know, it creates some resiliency there, which I think is good. And I I think part of that ties back to to the the fact that in Canada, you've got some great examples of really low carbon emissions societies and technologies. So I think if there was just a, a little more exchange of or realization that, hey, look, you know, um, in places like Montreal, we're, we're doing things really well. We've, we're building our cities so that we're not dependent on you know, massive gas guzzling vehicles. And we build our houses with great efficiency standards. And um, I mean, I look at these cold places in the world and we're like, oh, well, we've got to be dependent upon heating oil and so forth to keep the places warm. And it's like, well, actually look at Iceland and places like that where they're, they're like, well, how can we tap into other sources around us, be it geothermal hot rocks or be it you know, wind turbines? There's always something that you can do if you're just a little bit more creative. Yeah, you know, the other thing, the other quick thing I think that's worth pointing out or acknowledging, given the current state of affairs, is the wildfire season in Canada, mm-hmm. you know, worst on record. And and you have the situation where you've got fires in eastern provinces, which is very atypical. I mean, in the western, you know, United States, western Canada, we're more used to wildfire, right? It's it's more typical in our drier climate. But the fact that that's happening now in, in Eastern Canada and that you have a fire season where so many acres have burned so early just illustrates how, you know, a country like Canada is seeing these climate impacts, you know, really it's sort of climate impacts on steroids, right? They're, they're seeing mm-hmm. it much sooner and more dramatically. Yeah, I can't help but think about what Simon was already talking about with the atmospheric rivers. I mean, some of the stats on that are just wild in general, you know, huge climate buzzword, but 
Atmospheric River AR is this big stream of water vapor that can drop a month's worth of precipitation in a few days. And, you know, Lewis, you're talking about fires, and those are kind of only worsening the effects of these ARs because all of a sudden, you know, the plants that would be taking all this runoff and repurposing it are, you know, burned out. So pretty scary stuff. Yeah. And I guess great motivation for being able to, you know, tighten the screws on these these climate measures, right? So that we're doing more faster. And I think while these situations are obviously very tragic, let's not let them go to waste, right? Let's use them as a call to action and to, mm-hmm. you know, hold the government more accountable. I think along those lines too, the the impact of those fires and the smoke moving all the way to the East Coast and down the East Coast into places like New York, it's it's definitely been an eye opener for those communities that like, wow, you know, the, the effect we've been having on the planet is real. And it, it, there are issues that are, are going to be impacting us. The fact that we can't walk outside and, and breathe decent air anymore. I mean, it's a terrible situation, but it's good that the public are now becoming aware of the impact of our emissions. Yeah, it's true. And Simon brought up the point that like there's a bit of a fear behind these events that drives all this environmental interest. And he's kind of worried about this idea of, you know, once the event goes away, some of the lasting impacts are gone, people kind of forget and lose that motivation. And what's scary is that I think that's becoming less and less of a problem because we're having more and more events. Like you look at any major news source and you can find somewhere globally some climate event that is is really shaking people. Yeah. All the more reason to use it as a catalyst to, you know, push on elected officials to strengthen targets, right? Absolutely. Um, strengthen policies rather. And that kind of leads to our, our what can we do. And I hear that somebody on the team actually wrote a letter. <laughs> we were going to do, you know, we, we were, we were going to do a segment this week on uh, what have you done for the climate. But uh, rumor has it that somebody wrote a letter to their elected officials. We always got to celebrate these. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a follow-up on the environmental justice one. I wrote a letter to our local uh, transit authority here and was like, hey, you know, I, I see diesel buses everywhere. Like, what are your plans on, on making the switch? And, and it turns out there is a plan. <laughs> um, Ooh, I don't know how good. much of this plan I'm allowed to announce, but yeah, one, one, one city, they're going to be doing a trial with two electric buses. And yeah, the other major city in Tasmania, they're going to be doing a trial with three hydrogen buses, which actually made me a little bit sad. So I'm like, look, here's why the battery bus is a really good idea and why it's not necessary for us to reinvent the wheel down here. Let's just look at what others have already done. Anyway, we'll see what happens. But it's great that they're um, they're getting there. And it's, it's also great that like I get the... F- feeling where you get a response from somebody, you put the effort into writing the the letter and somebody stepped up to the plate and wrote a response, which I really appreciate. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's perfect. And that's a, you know, that's really what we want to ask folks to do this week. The Trudeau administration is, wants to pump about 12 billion in tax incentives uh, into the oil and gas sector to help them implement carbon capture technology. And while that might sound good on the surface, right? Reducing that from our lens, at least mine, it's just prolonging the burning of fossil fuels. And so what we want to do is have folks email Trudeau and tell him to abandon, you know, this idea of tax incentives for oil and gas and instead, you know, put those towards places where you have much more predictable and permanent solutions like, you know, building heating and and on future industries, right? You know, things like solar batteries, et cetera. So 
As always, we'll have talking points on our website. We'll have a link there to email Trudeau's office. But, you know, encourage obviously all our Canadian listeners to send a note. And, you know, remember, as Simon says, it doesn't take as many notes as you think it would. And it's all about having, you know, regular folks who are concerned about climate change be heard by their government. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. With the 4th of July holiday coming up here in the U.S., we won't be releasing our next episode until July 11th. In the meantime, get out there and do something bold for the climate. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.